Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Verses 1 and 2 are the reason for this story. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus is trying to lead the Pharisees to see themselves. And actually, the real point of this parable is not the first boy. The real point is the boy we're not going to talk about. And that's the second son. Because mirrored in the second son is the attitude the Pharisees had toward Jesus and Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. But it's really not the boy I want to talk about. There's something that happens in this text that I want to use as a launching point for us to think about this morning. When we read this in the English it seems a rather benign event, though we find it somewhat insulting. We find it some, somewhat uh, ostentatious on this young man's part to come to his father and, and say, give me my inheritance, which was not his to begin with. Quite presumptuous in that, that he would be in his father's will to begin with. And the father of all things grants the son's request. I don't know what you think about that. Maybe your image of that is he has a bank full of money. And so he goes and, and uses the combination and locks the safe. And then just pours out all the money that has stored in the safe. 
I'd rather think that's probably not what happened. I'd rather think probably what happened is the father had to go sell some things in order to provide what the son had requested. But in the literal language, when this son comes and asks his father for the inheritance, the literal language says, I wish you were dead. It would not be too much for me if you were dead. Now that takes it beyond insulting and that takes it quite beyond presumptuous. You know, a person has to be really calloused. Look into the face of a father who might have an inheritance to give and demand that inheritance and in the process of saying, I wish you were dead. And the father grants the inheritance, grants the request. There was something that was an inheritance to this young man that he did not own, that did not belong to him. There was a lot, a portion that was granted to him because of the Father's mercy and the Father's grace. And I want to think just a moment about our inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 3, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and beginning in verse 3, you have the statement by Paul that Blessed be the God and Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, in Christ. Just to pause and a parenthetical thought here. In the New King James, you have the word places that is supplied in italics. And that really takes us in a different direction than what is intended to talk about here. It's not intended to talk about the third heaven, not intended to talk about a place where spiritual blessings are. The idea of heavenlies is he has blessed us with spiritual blessings that are exalted. They are celestial blessings. They're not of the earth earthy. They're of the heaven heavenly. And so here are exalted blessings. He's not talking about location. He's talking about how these are exalted blessings. They are celestial blessings. You don't get any higher in all the blessings you can possibly get than spiritual blessings that are found in Christ. And so he's talking about spiritual blessings, but then he will come to verse 11 and say, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so he moves from this idea of spiritual blessings to now talk about an inheritance that we have been given. Here is an inheritance we have been given. He mentions that again in verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also believed. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise. And he said, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of the glory. So in the first part, when Paul is laying out these seven spiritual blessings that are mentioned here, he talks about is, one of those is our inheritance. But notice the transition as he moves to the first prayer in verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his inheritance. Did you notice the transition? Did you notice the change? In chapter 1 and verse 3 and verse 11 and verse 13, verse 14, he's talking about our inheritance. But now then in this second mention here, in this prayer that Paul mentions, he talks about, I want you to know how the riches of his inheritance. We're not talking about our inheritance there. We're talking about God's inheritance, the riches of his inheritance. What does God get out of all this? Out of this experiment called humanity, what does God get all this? The riches of his inheritance, notice, in the saints, in a particular kind of people. A kind of people who have willingly bowed their knee to him to say, yes, you are my Lord. So he talks about the riches of his inheritance. In Acts chapter 26, in Acts chapter 26, in verses 17 through 18, Acts chapter 26, verses 17 through 18. When Paul is recounting the events that took place that eventuated in his following the Lord, verse 17, the Lord tells him, I will deliver you from, Jew, from the Jewish people as well from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Notice, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith. First of all, that, that opening part of verse 18 sounds a whole lot like the first part of the prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, that the eyes of their understanding being opened. And here the Lord is saying, I'm sending you to open their eyes, the eyes of their understanding be opened. In order to what? In order to provide for them the opportunity what for an inheritance, not, not then, but there's something we have of our inheritance now. He's not simply talking about that, yes, there is an inheritance that is, grand, that is filled with grandeur. There's an inheritance that is filled with glory. There is that inheritance in the, in the fellowship with God that will be endless, that will be time without measure. And yes, that promise is there and that assurance is there. But what he wants us to see here is there's also something that is part of our inheritance now. We don't have forgiveness then. We have forgiveness now. We share in the benefits of a faith that has led to an obedience unto Christ now. So there's an inheritance that we have that we will realize when the judgment day comes. And in the presence of God and perfect fellowship with him for all, all time. And it's not just the fact that he has his inheritance. But we also have a part of our inheritance now. In Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1. After Judas has gone to his place. It says in verse 26, concerning Matthias and Joseph, and they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. They cast their lots. The closest imagery I can give that is you put a name on a piece of paper, you shake it up until one falls out, and that's the lot. 
That's the name. And so here the thing was shaken, the lot fell, and the lot fell to Matthias. And now Matthias has the portion, has the portion that belonged to Judas. Just a sidebar, which one of these men would you have chosen? And further on that sidebar, I kind of wonder how Joseph felt after that was all over. I suspect Joseph didn't have a problem with that. Because if Joseph was a man who would have been qualified to have been an apostle, I suspect the humility of Joseph was such that he got in line and he was a, a, a cheerleader for Matthias. But here the lot fell to Matthias and Matthias received the portion, the part that belonged to Judas and the place that Judas would hold. You remember in Acts chapter 8 when Peter and John are performing miracles and they come to the presence of one named Simon who is a sorcerer. And Simon is, is taken back by by the ability of these apostles to, to do these miracles. And Simon is a wealthy man. And he basically says, uh, can I buy that? How much will you sell that to me for? A little bit of a stretch in what the narrative is, but close to what the idea is. How much will you sell that to me for? And Peter said, you have neither part nor portion. You have neither lot nor portion to share in this. It's not ours to give. It's not ours to sell. And another reason you can't have it is because your heart's not right. And you need to pray to God for repentance that you may receive salvation. Simon had already been baptized. And now Peter rebukes him and says, there's something you still lack in this. But there was a part. There was a portion that was not his. When we think about this idea of a lot and a portion, a portion of our inheritance today, I want us to think about some things that, that we have been blessed with as a part of our inheritance. Now, I want to qualify something. Usually when one gets to a lesson like this and begins to point out the things I'm going to identify. It comes off as a rebuke to say, you're not good enough. And you're not doing enough. And so therefore, you need to put a hot shot to yourself and you need to get to where you're doing more and doing more. Doing more and being more. I want to tell you, that's not my motivation in this. My motivation is not, not to stick a finger in somebody's eye. It's not to make someone feel guilty. It is to challenge us, however, to think about something and to think about the lot that we share in the portion that has been given to us. And so when we think about our inheritance, have you thought about the idea of the inheritance, the portion that we have that is our time? The portion of our time. Paul will talk about in the book of Ephesians, redeeming the time, buying back the time. Have we thought about the blessing of time that is our portion and how we go about spending the time that we have been granted? It's not unusual for the retort to be given. I would like to do that, but I just don't have enough time. Implication is there's something else that's more important for me to do than to be able to do that thing. 
And so I'm consumed with the thing that is more important than me, to me than, than the doing of that thing. But really, it's not a matter of whether we have enough time, is it? Last I checked, now, now since we have this time change, maybe, maybe the hours are different. But last I checked, most all of us, if not every one of us, have 24 hours in a day. I've never found someone with 25, and I've never found someone with 23. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. And we get to choose what we want to do with those hours in that day. We get to spend the days of our life as sands flow through the hourglass as the old, as the old sitcom or the old soap goes. Now the question is, what are we using that time for? Don't most of us, don't most of us find the time to do what we want to do? No matter how crowded our schedules are, don't we find a way to shoehorn in the thing that we want to do, even though our calendars are already chock full of activity and every time slot is taken there? And no, this is not not a condemnation of, of using that time for our own recreation. I'm impressed with the fact that the Lord even told the children of Israel, you need to take some time. And so he created a Sabbath rest for them. That was a play on the fact that they'd been in Egypt for 430 years. They'd been making bricks 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They'd not had time to set apart, to give in consideration of God. And so God says, now I've delivered you. I'm going to set aside for you. I'm going to set something that is a prescription for you. That you're going to separate yourself from everything else and you're not going to work on that day. However, not everybody was work free on that day. The priests worked on that day. That's a big day for them. They didn't get the day off. But here, God set aside a time for them. Why? Because he knew their lives was busy and they needed that time to recreate themselves. Again, another consideration. What did Jesus do on occasion? Did Jesus spend every day pressing the clock? Trying to get everything worked in. What did he do on occasion? Did he not go to the mountain and separate himself from the people in order to find that time of recreation and reorienting himself and fellowship with God? So when we ask the question, it's not about, okay, you can't take any time for yourself. You can't take any play time. You can't have any time to spend with your family. That's not it. But the question is, when I use that time, Or what am I redeeming it? Here's our portion. We have that inheritance now. We have been granted that time, that portion of our inheritance now to do what? And and what are we going to do with our time to serve the Lord and the Lord's people? You know, sometimes we'll talk about the idea, the concept of materialism. And the truth of the matter is we all struggle with that. There's not a material person that does not struggle with materialism. And if we think we are above that, then we need to look in the mirror again because we all struggle with it, whoever we are. Material people, 
That's who we are, struggling with material things and the value of them. But isn't time part of that? Isn't time part of our material existence? And materialism is not simply found in, okay, how many dollars do I spend and what do I covet? It's also found in how do I materially apply the time that I have in serving the Lord. That's our portion. Consider again another thing that is a part of our stewardship. When we think about our stewardship, that simply means we've been entrusted with something for the management of another. And here's this young man that comes and says, give me my goods. Give me my inheritance. I'm reminded of another parable our Lord used of the unjust steward. You remember that man? He's been cooking the books. And now then the time for, for accounting is going to come. The bill's going to come due for him. And he knows he's been cooking the books. And so what does he do? He goes and he, he sets the game. He, he's going to play the shell game. And he's going to move things around so that when he cooks the books, he'll have a lot of friends that can, he can go to and say, yes, you, you gave us a relief of the debt, and you gave us so much relief of this debt, and you gave us so much relief of this debt, and now then I know your master's been cruel to you. You can come and you can be our buddy here. Interesting thing about that man is the Lord said, how is it that the sons of light are not as wise as the children of day. And he's not suggesting there that we need to be shrewd with how we treat others, but what he's saying is, do we, do we plan for ourselves? Are we as wise as those of the world, how they provide for themselves, in providing for ourselves as sons of light with true riches? Because the riches will testify against us, he will say. Now, I, I know the relief for that. The relief for that is, you can go to your Zelle account. I can't say past the plate anymore. You can go to your Zelle account, or you, you, you can, in the bucket at the back, you can, you, can drop, you can drop your 10% in at the back. And so we've dropped our 10% in, and the, and the 90% is ours. And we gave 10% to the Lord. We all, know the, we all know the next line here. We all know none of that belongs to us. We know the, the cattle are his, the hills are his, everything is his, we're his, we belong to him, and everything he has granted to us is already his. And so if we think, okay, we're going we're gonna to convince the Lord that we're managing what he's given to us by giving him 10%, and the 90% is ours to use as wastefully as this young man did, as prodigally as we choose to do. But we know better than that, don't we? We know whatever the goods are, it's not, just, it's not just dollars. Whatever the goods are, how am, I, how am I managing the goods that God has given me? We all, have, we all have homes that are very nice homes. We all drive cars that are very functional for the most part. Some very nice cars. No, that's fine. We, we've all in some way built bigger barns, haven't we? I mean, how many of us live in the kind of place we lived in when we were first married? Probably not very many of us. How many of us drive the kind of car we drove when we first were married? Probably not very many of us. You know, when you drive a car, you have to push down the road. Now you've got one that will go by itself. That's a pretty good improvement. But that's not, that's not the issue, is it? 
The issue is, is how am I using that? How am I using that for the Lord himself? Just a reminder. I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 3. In verses 16 and following, he talks about, in 1 John 3, 16, is the, is the parallel to John 3, 16. How God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And then he says this. How is it that we could see our brother in need and say to him, go in peace. I hope your needs are provided and shut up, he says, our bowels of compassion. To shut up our heart of compassion. How can we say we, have, we see a brother in need and we have the ability to provide that relief and say, I sure hope you get it figured out. And then he said, love not word indeed, word in truth, but love in, uh, word indeed, but love, love in truth. It's not just enough to say I love you, it's how, how are we going to demonstrate that? Love is proven by action and measured by sacrifice. And so the Lord has provided us the opportunity to relieve and help the need of a brother who's in need. But we turn our back as we walk away and say, sure, hope you get it figured out. Will we not think it's the, the height of an insult to, to go into a brother or sister's house and they're both infirmed or sick in some way and we see a sink full of dishes, we see a laundry, full, laundry room, room full of clothes that have been stacked for two weeks, they have not been able to be washed, and so we go and say, we just want to check and see how you're doing. Well, we're not doing very good. We've sure been sick. I sure am sorry about that. I sure hope you get well. See you tomorrow and walk on our way. Are they going to think, you know, they really cared about me. Isn't the least of what we could have done was to stop by? The least of what we could have done would have been to call? What would it have been for us to have then washed the dishes? To have washed and folded the clothes? To have swept the floor? You see, we've been given a lot of things. And we've given a lot of, a lot of things that can provide for others. And that, that flows right into the next one then, and that is, that has to do with our opportunities. That's a nice transition to our opportunities. As we have opportunity to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith, it's not just opportunities to those of the household of faith. That Samaritan of all people did good to all men. Here's this guy that's been beat to a pulp, left on the side of the road for dead. The priest and Levite have passed by. They have done nothing to help this man. But here's this Samaritan, the most unlikely of people that would have been imagined, that provides for what this man needs. He took advantage of the opportunity. Responsibility is opportunity plus ability. Responsibility is opportunity plus ability. If I have the opportunity but I don't have the ability, then I don't have the responsibility. If I have the ability but not the opportunity, I don't have the responsibility. But when I have the opportunity and the ability, I have a responsibility. How am I redeeming the time? Am I using the portion of opportunities that have been given to me? Am I using the portion of opportunities to talk to people whose lives are in trouble? Am I using the opportunities, the portion of opportunities that have been given to me to, to talk to someone whose soul is lost or someone whose soul is in danger, to help a brother who's overcoming a fault to be restored? Am I taking advantage of those opportunities? 
Just a thought. Surely. Surely we've not concluded that those opportunities are restricted to just the paid, the paid servants. And we want the paid servants to do that for us. And so if you'll do that for us, we'll put our money in the plate and we'll make sure you have enough money and you're the paid servant, so we want you to teach those people. We want you to call those people. We want you to make sure those people are whole. Nowhere does the man who preaches the gospel has right to live by the gospel. Is that ever said about him? The fact that a man is supported to preach the gospel does not mean that the responsibilities are isolated only to him. Nor does it mean it's restricted to the elders. Every one of us. What, what, what if every one of us, just, just whatever the opportunity and ability we had, and we, I understand we, we all have different gifts and, and we all have different opportunities. I'm not suggesting we all have the same. Ralph did a great job of helping us understand some are of toes, some are of fingers, some are of nose. And, and we all understand that. We all have a share in what that is. That all goes up to, to make who we are. But for just a little toe, we did what a little toe was supposed to do. And for just the nose, and did what the nose could do. And the hand, just what the hand could do. And every part that supplied itself to the benefit of the whole could do that. How many opportunities would we have to take advantage of? To help others. To reach out to others. And to teach others. Again, we live in a material world. Materialism is not just a collection of goods. It's just not the hoarding of money. Materialism also impacts how we look at our opportunities as well. And then, think about it from the standpoint of our spiritual blessings. Back to Ephesians chapter 1. We've been chosen. We've been redeemed. We've been adopted. The gospel has been made known to us. We have an inheritance. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of promise. But what about the spiritual blessings God has given to us in a fellowship of people like this? What about the blessing God has given to us in a fellowship of an assembly like this? An assembly where we can come and, and our, our thinking can be challenged. Assembly where we can come and we can be edified. God created the local church because he knew man, it was not good that man should be alone. That doesn't just mean marriage, as we talked about a few weeks ago. That also has to do spiritually. I might be able to survive on an island by myself if I'm the only one I have to worry about. But if I'm going to live in a world with other people, and I'm going to isolate myself, I'm going to significantly diminish my opportunities to help others and opportunities to grow spiritually. And if that's not the case, then why did God arrange the local church for us? Have we considered the local church as a spiritual blessing? And how are we taking advantage of that? And here's the weakness of this lesson. You're here at 9 o'clock. And so basically, you don't need the lesson. A good reminder. 
But maybe someone's watching and maybe someone will go back and watch. Maybe someone will think, you know, am I really taking advantage of the portion that I've been given? And then one final thing before we close. And that's how about our Bibles. How many Bibles do you have in your home? How many Bibles do you have on your devices? You got a family Bible? That family Bible sits on the coffee table. The pages aren't crimpled. You know one of the problems with my Bibles, one way I wear them out is I always lick my finger to turn the page. And after a while, the page begins to turn up. And after a while, it begins to break down. And I realize family Bibles are more for show than they are for use. But the point is this. Our Bibles warm because we've been turning the pages, because we've been reading them? Are they just simply to collect the names and the births, the deaths, the marriages, and to press the flowers in between the pages? Is, is that the greatest value we see in this book we call God's Word? How, how are we using the portion? Have you thought, this is a portion of our inheritance. How are we using the portion of our inheritance? I've said this before, and I just close with this point. I don't know how you do with daily Bible reading programs. And I've seen all kinds. I've I got to confess to you, I don't do good with daily Bible reading programs. I get behind because I missed a day or two, and then all I'll do is I start reading so I can check off the box that says I read it, and I don't pay a bit of attention to what I read. i just got to make sure I checked off the box. Okay, I'm caught up. Now, I can't, now I'm okay. I've, I've read the Bible. No, it's not just enough have I opened the Bible and looked at the black and white. It's what am I doing to take this in? You know, just reading Luke chapter 15 a while ago, there are a few things I saw just in that reading with you I'd never seen before in that reading. And divided the inheritance among them, I never saw it before. There's always something new that's there. That's the beauty of this book. It never grows old. It never wears out. Here's the portion of our inheritance. The portion of our inheritance of our time, our goods, our money, our opportunities, the spiritual blessings that have been given to us, and our Bibles. As I said, this is, this, we're stewards. And this is just simply to remind us of what our stewardship is and what our part is in a lot of that stewardship. And so I just ask you to think about that. Just a reminder for us to keep things in focus, to sharpen ourselves, and be more aware of the portion of our inheritance that we have now. Not going to have, but we have now. Thank you so much.